Let's pray together. Father, we ask now that you would cause us to understand what it is to be buried through baptism into the death of Christ. And Lord, we pray that you would help us to consider ourselves dead to sin and alive to you. So Lord, we ask that you would help us to be attentive to your word, cause us to perceive the meaning of what is stated here, and Lord, we pray that you would help us to devote ourselves to the practice of considering ourselves dead to sin. Help us to realize what that means to live it out, and to present ourselves to you. Help us to present our bodies as instruments of righteousness. So Lord, we pray that you would be at work in our hearts now, and that we would be changed as a result of our time in this passage this morning. We pray that you would do it in the name of Jesus. Amen. So we come this morning to Romans chapter 6. I would invite you to turn there, Romans chapter 6. And as we approach this passage, um, this passage is prompted, what Paul says here in Romans 6, we'll be looking at verses 1 through 14, what Paul says here is prompted by what he had said at the end of chapter 5. So in in Romans 5 verse 20, we saw last week, that, that Paul is in the process of explaining that the law is not God's final solution to the sin problem. So Paul's Jewish contemporaries evidently thought what God did to help us overcome sin and to fix the problem of sin in humanity, what God did to fix this was he gave us the law. And Paul is in the process of explaining, no, that's not God's solution. Actually, as he says in 520, the law came in to increase the trespass, to make it worse so that where sin increased, grace abounded all the more. So Paul is explaining that the law is not God's solution. God's grace in Christ is the solution to the sin problem. And um, some people, um, inevitably, because our hearts are perverse, our hearts are wicked, people inevitably think, oh, well, if grace is increased where sin increases, why don't we sin some more to make grace look all the better? And that's what Paul is going to address here in Romans 6, verses 1 through 14. And I want to open with with an image that I'm going to... I hope it's traumatic for you. I hope this image is both shocking and disgusting and traumatic, and I hope you'll apply that trauma to the attractive power of sin, Okay? So I want you to imagine yourself drowning. I want you to imagine yourself sinking under these rolling waves. And as you go down and darkness is closing over you, you realize that the liquid muck into which you are sinking sinking deeper and deeper is raw sewage. I'm talking about the stuff that's in those porta-potties. 
disgusting. Your nose and mouth are being filled with this killing filth. You are tasting this. Your lungs are screaming for oxygen. Your instincts are revolting against what you realize is happening. And you come to to understand that you are dying a shameful, fetid, putrid, disgusting death. And if we step back and think about this, really every death is that way, isn't it? Even if you don't die drowning in raw sewage, you will suffer the indignities that accompany the inability to keep yourself alive. Your heart will lose its rhythm, your lungs will strain for oxygen, your body will cease to function, and you will realize that you are too weak to continue. Death is shameful, and death stems from sin. Death is the wage that sin pays. It's the reward sin gives. Romans 6.23, the wages of sin is death. Now, in the midst of this, imagine Romans 5.20 happening. Just as you realize you cannot keep your head, you cannot get your head back above level so that you can get clean oxygen. And you're, you're, you're going under the undulating stew of filth and all your law-breaking transgression is dragging you further down, filling your mouth and nose with yuck. And just at that moment, you are dragged into clean air and you're cleansed of all the mess that is all over you. You're rinsed free of it. Your nostrils and mouth are refreshed. Fresh air fills your lungs, and your body is not only cleansed, you are clothed in fine apparel, arrayed in splendor, and brought into the presence of the holy and high king of heaven. So you go from filth to finery so fast that you are dizzy with this dramatic deliverance. That severe change in circumstances causes the gracious character of your salvation to shine with God's own glory. And the cleansing, what happened, that that transformation is so awesome and complete that everyone marvels at it. That's the context for Paul's question in Romans 6.1 when he says here, what shall we say then? Are we to continue in sin that grace may abound? It's like he's asking, should we dive back in to put the grace on display some more? And of course, your response to that is going to be, no, no. And it's going to be emotional. It should be emotional. There should be this revulsion. And that's what's expressed here in verse 2 when Paul says, by no means, this may ganoita, may it never be, may that not become a reality. I don't want that. And the reason he's responding that way is because sin is disgusting. When we, when we think of sin, what we want to think of is something that causes death. We want to think of decay. We want to think of excrement. We don't want to think, that looks like the Garden of Eden. That looks like a lovely bed of roses for me to go frolic in. No, it's a, it's a pit of sewage that we're tempted to dive into. 
So this, this passage opens in verses 1 and 2 with Paul raising this issue. Are we to continue in sin that grace may abound? He gives his answer in verse 2. He says, by no means, how can we who died to sin still live in it? So, so the truth of this passage is reflected in that opening question. How can we who died to sin still live? live in it. In this passage, in verses 2 through 13, I count 17 references to death. And, and, he, and he references death in different ways. He talks about dying. He talks about being baptized into death. It's in, it's in every verse from, from um, verses 2 through 13. Sometimes there are multiple references to death in verses 2 through verse 13. He, he talks about the body of sin being brought to nothing. He talks about being crucified with Jesus. There's all this reference to death. So I think that the, the dominant idea of this passage is that those who believe in Jesus have died with him. That's the, that's the concept that Paul articulates most frequently in this passage, death. And then accompanying that, there are also 10 references to life. And, and life is, is just as prominent in this passage because the idea is you've been put to death with Christ and you've been made alive with Christ. So, so in verses, it, life occurs in every verse except for 1, 3, 6, and 14. And then accompanying the 10 references to life, there are also 10, 10 references to sin. Um, so, so death, sin, and life, that's what we're dealing with. Death coming from sin and the new life that comes to those who, who die with Christ. Sin results in death, but we live by God's grace. And um, the way that we enter into this is through baptism. So what Paul is teaching in this passage is that the way to live is to die. The way to live is to die. Life comes from death. That's what he's teaching in this passage. And the way to enter into the life of Christ is to be baptized into his death. So in verses 1 and 2, we've got the question. In verses 3 through 7, Paul is going to discuss the way that we are dead to sin. So he's just said at the end of verse 2, he's just asked this question, how can we who died to sin still live in it? And now what he's going to do is he's going to explain how it is that we are dead, how it is that we died to sin. And he, and he starts with a question in verse 3. Do you not know? Okay, so Paul is assuming that this is something that Christians should understand. There's a focus in this passage on understanding and knowledge. In, in fact... I think the very first command in the whole book of Romans, to this point in the book of Romans, we haven't seen any imperatives, any commands from the Apostle Paul. I think the very first command is the one in verse 11 when he says, you must consider yourselves. So he's after the way that we think about ourselves. Paul is after our self-conception, our identity. He, he wants to reshape and redefine who we think we are. So he says, do you not know, here in verse 3, that all of us who have been baptized into Christ Jesus 
were baptized into his death. Okay, so he's talking to Christians. He's talking to people who have experienced baptism. And he's saying, when, now I'm going to do this with my Baptist assumptions, and then I'll come back and talk about some other people that don't, don't share my Baptist assumptions. He's, he's saying, when you, go, when you went under the waters as a believer, when you were baptized, that symbolically united you to the death of the Lord Jesus. Okay, and this is what, he's, what he said in verse 2, how can we who died to sin? You died to sin when by faith you were united to Christ, and, and you went under those waters, and symbolically, you were united to Christ in his experience of, of death. Do you not know that all of us who have been baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? What he's doing is he's telling us, he's telling us, if, you, if you're a believer here, he's saying, you're dead. You're old man. If you look down at, at verse 6, we know that the ESV renders this. We know that our old self, there's a footnote on the word self. You got man in the lower margin. We know that our old man was crucified with him. You're, you're, you're Adamic person. You're either in Adam or in Christ. The in Adam, old man, man, Adam thing, your old man is dead. It got crucified with Jesus because by faith you're united to Jesus and his death counts for you so that you are dead you cannot continue in sin because you died to sin when you were crucified with Christ, as symbolized in your baptism. He elaborates on this further in verse 4. We were buried, therefore, with him by baptism. So he says in verse 6 there, our old self was crucified with him. And then he says here in verse 4, you're buried with him. Now, you're only united to Christ in his experience of, of these things by faith. That has been made very clear in the book of Romans. Paul, Paul has gone after justification by faith in Romans chapter 4. He, he spent a lot of time developing the idea that it is faith that justifies. So it's only those who are united to Christ by faith who experience their old man crucified with Christ and then that that old self buried with him. We were buried, therefore, with him by baptism into death in order that, just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too might walk in newness of life. Now, I just want to put, I want, to get, I want us to get verse 4 and what Paul is saying here clear before our minds, and then we'll come back and talk for just a moment about baptism. What he's saying goes like this. Jesus was literally killed. And Jesus was literally buried. And, and if you're a Christian, or if you just believe in ancient history and, and reliable sources, you know this to be true. That there are people who think that nobody named Jesus ever lived, and maybe he, he was never crucified, whatever. I don't think those people are accounting for the available evidence, and I don't think that their suppositions will stand up against the weight of testimony that we have, that there was a man named Jesus, and he was actually crucified by the Romans, and his death and, and his resurrection actually sparked this movement called Christianity, which uh, the, the, the greatest efforts of the strongest government powers 
in the history of the world across the ages has been unable to stamp out. You know, they're trying to stamp it out in China right now. They are not going to succeed. Maybe you saw this statement that these pastors in China made where they they say, we're prepared for you to take everything away from us. We're prepared for you to put us in jail. We're prepared for you to kill us. And they keep saying, we must teach the gospel. We cannot not teach the gospel. They, they keep, this, is how, this is how it works. And, and so uh, Jesus was crucified. Jesus was literally buried. Now, what Paul is saying that accompanies that is, figuratively speaking, because it's not literal that we got killed, right? But figuratively speaking, spiritually speaking, in the way that Christ was crucified, our old self, our old man was crucified with him. And in the way that Christ was buried, we were buried with him symbolically when we were baptized in the waters. And then he says, in order that there in verse 4, just as Christ was raised from the dead. So Jesus was crucified, buried, raised. Just as, note the comparison, just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, which is a remarkable statement, this glorious power of God, this almighty, creative uh, splendor of God is what raised Jesus from the dead. Jesus, just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too might walk in newness of life. Okay, so, so get the comparison in your head. Christ was crucified, buried, physically raised. We were spiritually crucified with him, symbolically buried with him, and now we have a foretaste of resurrection life. That's what he's saying, and we are walking in this new resurrection life, anticipating, he goes on to say in verse 5, if we have been united with him in a death like his, we shall certainly be united with him in a resurrection like his. So what he's saying is the new life that Christians experience, if you've been born again, if you've experienced regeneration, if If you've had that thing happen where you went from resisting the gospel and not wanting to accept it and not wanting to follow Jesus to all of a sudden you realize, why would anyone resist Jesus? And why would anyone do anything other than, if that's happened to you, this conversion has happened to you, you are experiencing an anticipation of the life that you will experience when your corpse, your dead corpse is raised from the dead. And you are given a glorified body, and you experience the life of the age to come. That's what Paul is saying. Now, let's talk for a moment about baptism. And what I want to do is is I just want to make a a few comments about this and contrast it with some things that I read and heard this week from people of different persuasions. So um, um, the the word baptize simply means plunge or immerse, as in, you know, duck it under the water. That's what the word means. And um, I have looked at every B-A-P-T word in the, in the entirety of the New Testament. And there are no exceptions to this. There are no exceptions to the idea that the word means uh, put under the water. That's what the word means. So that if we were to translate this, instead of what we've done is we've taken the Greek letters and put them into English letters to make this word baptize. If we were to translate the word, we would have immerse. Um, Or something like that. Do you not know that all of us who have been immersed into Christ Jesus were immersed into his death? 
We were buried, therefore, with him by immersion into death in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too might walk in newness of life. That's what the word means. And um, um, there are some Christians that, in my opinion, I think that they, 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 don't, they don't read the relationship between the Old and New Testament correctly, and they've come up with this idea that we should baptize babies. And um, there are a number of problems with this. One problem is there is no statement in the New Testament that says, baptize the infant children of believers. The New Testament never teaches that. Nor is there a clear instance of some believers actually baptizing an infant. There, there are reference to household baptisms, and then the assumption is made that within those households you have infants. I think that's an unwarranted assumption, and so I think they shouldn't, without a clear statement and without a clear example, I think they shouldn't do that. I think, I mean, Jesus said, go make disciples, baptizing them, the disciples, and a disciple is someone who believes, and we could go on. Well, um, this week, I was, um, I was reading, I, I really have been enjoying this commentary by uh, David Peterson on Romans. It's a good commentary, but he gets to this, and he's an Anglican, he's a, he's a Pado-Baptist, and he says, he, he, he says, burial was not often under the surface of the earth in Paul's day, but people were buried in tombs as Jesus was and in caves. Therefore, um, we should not be uh, too insistent upon tying the imagery of baptism and burial too closely to immersion in water. Which, you know, initially you're like, oh yeah, okay. Buried in caves, not buried under the earth. But then you start thinking about it, and in the ancient world, what's the universal place of the dead? The underworld, right? That's the way everybody in the ancient world conceived of it. Hades is under the earth. Sheol is under the earth. And then if you start looking at the Bible, the Bible regularly talks about people being, I mean, in fact, the, the verb for raised up is like a synonym for the word resurrection. So everybody talks about those who are resurrected as those who are coming up out of their graves. In fact, that language, you can find that everywhere in the Bible. So I think that's just, that's not a very good argument that we shouldn't equate burial with immersion. No, I think we probably should. I think that that's not, that's not going to do it for you. Uh, as much as I like your commentary on Romans, sorry. And then, and then um, there was another, another argument that I actually heard uh, preached this week that tried to tie um, the, the pronouncing of the triune name uh, Jesus telling his disciples to go and make disciples, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. They tried to tie that with this sort of christening or naming uh, that infant pedo-baptists do when they, when, they, when they baptize a baby, then they'll christen the baby and give the baby a name. The problem is that that's not what Jesus is talking about, is it? Jesus is saying, baptize them in the name of the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit, and he doesn't say anything about giving the child a Christian name at that point. Neither does Paul here. So when they talk about that sort of thing, they're just talking about something other than what the Bible is saying. So I'm, I, remain, I remain resolutely Baptist. <laughs> and I think that Paul here is saying, when you were put under the waters, you were buried with Christ in baptism. And, and you know, it, I think it was Jesus himself who 
who connected this idea of being immersed in waters with his death. You remember in Mark, Mark 10 and in Luke 12, Jesus says, referring to the cross, I have a baptism to undergo. And he's talking about being crucified. And, and I think Paul is informed by what Jesus said, the way that Jesus described his own crucifixion. And he's saying, Jesus' baptism was a death. Your baptism was a death. That's the meaning of the symbolism. And I don't think that symbolism is encapsulated if you take water and you sprinkle it on someone who doesn't believe. That, that's just... So, so our statement of faith says that baptism is the immersion of a believer in water. And I think that's what the Bible reflects. So this is what your baptism is about. If you're, if you're here, you're a believer in Jesus, you've been immersed in water, this is what your baptism was about. It was about the end of your old life. Now, what Paul's going to do is he's going to elaborate on what this implies in verses 5 through 7, and he's really going to draw out what it is to be dead to sin. But he starts with the hope in verse 5. The hope is that the life that we experience now, the new life, the newness of life that he had talked about there at the end of verse 4, we too might walk in newness of life, that's an anticipation of the resurrection life. So he starts in verse 5, he says, if we have been united with him in a death like his, note the, note the union with Christ, and it's, it's only by faith that you're connected to Jesus. I mean, you could do it another way. You could use the John 15 imagery, and you abide in the vine. You're a branch who abides in the vine by abiding in Christ. And how do you abide in Christ? Well, Jesus says, if my words abide in you, you will abide in me. And it's, it's believing the words of Jesus that keeps us connected to the vine as branches. If we've been united with him in a death like his, we shall certainly be united with him in a resurrection like his. So Paul is saying, if you've been crucified with Christ, you've been You've been buried with him in baptism. You can be certain that your body is going to be raised from the dead. Verse 6, we know that our old man, our old self, was crucified with him in order that the body of sin might be brought to nothing. I think that Paul is talking about this body of sin. If you want to look at another couple of references, look at, look at what he says in Romans seven twenty four. He says, wretched man that I am. Who will deliver me from this body of death? And then in Romans 8, um, Paul, Paul talks about how in verse, in verse 15, he says, we've received the spirit of adoption as sons. And then in verse um, 23, he says that we, we who have the first fruits of the spirit grown inwardly as we, as we wait eagerly for adoption as sons, the redemption of our bodies. And these bodies, also he had talked in, in uh, verse 11, for instance, he says, he who raised Christ Jesus from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies through his spirit. So I think that these, these various references are connected to this body of sin in, in Romans 6, 6. Your body of sin is your mortal body, it's the body of death. And, and our bodies, they, they will physically die, 
And we also have these perverse inclinations. We, we have these appetites that are sinful. We have this desire to dive headlong into that cesspool. Maybe you resonate with Andrew Peterson's song like I do when he, when he, when he said, Through the years I barely fell, I mostly dove right in. I drank so deep of the shallow well, only to thirst again. That's our experience in these mortal bodies, in this body of sin. But what Paul is saying here in Romans 6, 6 is that old self was crucified with him in order that the body of sin might be brought to nothing so that we would no longer be enslaved to sin. And I think it's, it's analogous to the way that the reign of Satan has been ended by the crucifixion, even as he remains, Ephesians 2, the prince of the power of the air, until Christ returns. Our, the power of sin has been broken in our lives. Its presence remains until we either die or, and, or Christ returns. The presence of sin is going to continue with us because we have these mortal bodies, these body of sin, bodies of sin that we're going to struggle against until the last day. But we don't have to be enslaved to it there in verse 6. So that we would no longer be enslaved to sin. For, the explanation verse 7, for the one who has died has been set free from sin. And uh, you, you might notice a footnote on that word set free there in verse 7. And down in the lower margin, it says Greek has been justified. That's the language. The one who has died has been justified from sin. I heard, uh, thanks to Matt, Matt sent me this link to a Sinclair Ferguson uh, sermon, and uh, Sinclair Ferguson was talking about this, this um, feature of Scottish law. He's from Scotland, and in Scotland, in, I don't know if they still practice capital punishment, but in the old days, when they, would, when they would execute someone, there would be a public notice about the man executed, and it would say, on such and such a date, on such and such a year, such and such a person was justified from his transgressions because he'd been executed. And the point of it was all the claims of the law were met in his execution. He, and, and justice was fully satisfied in this man's death. And that's what Paul is saying here. He says here in verse 7, one who has died, and, and he's talking about one who has been crucified with Jesus. The old man Verse 6 there, our old man was crucified with him. One who has died has been justified from sin. The claims of sin, the claims of the law are answered, met, satisfied, ended. We are dead to sin. Now, in verses 8 through 11, Paul, I think he's going to turn and focus on what it means to be alive to God. But before we go into this, I want to invite you to, to, to try to get your head more fully around what it is to be dead to sin. So um, I don't think this means that memories won't haunt us. Um, we'll be plagued by sorrows and by sadnesses and by temptations, and by the allure of, of past sin, the, maybe the, 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 the false comfort of nursing old grievances, holding on to grudges, those things are going to continue. 
It doesn't mean that the memories won't hurt, hurt us. It do, doesn't mean that our, our Christian life is not going to be difficult. It does mean that God's grace has lifted us out of that cesspool. And it does mean that we don't want to go back into that cesspool. We're no longer enslaved to that impulse. We are dead to sin and we are alive to God. And so Paul is going to call us in verse 11 to consider ourselves dead. So what we have to do is we have to train our thoughts. We have to form our minds. We have to, we have to use the scriptures to shape our identity. So if we think something like this, I have this bad habit, the next thought should be, no, I'm dead to sin. I have this besetting sin. No, I'm dead to sin. I always think in the... No, I'm dead to sin. Terrible things have happened to me in my past. No, I was crucified with Christ. You, you have the choice. You have the choice to let... Christ's crucifixion and your identity in Him and your death to sin in Him be more prominent than your memories and your old impulses. But you have to cultivate that perspective. I get in this awful rut. No, you're dead to that rut and God has given you new life that partakes of the very resurrection itself. And then I think we should think about what it is to be dead. The, the other night... We were, at, uh, we were at Jake's basketball game, and there was a senior high girls game after ours, and a girl actually collapsed on the court, and, and they lost her pulse. They had to bring out the defibrillator, and they had to shock her back to life. But as they were performing CPR on this young high school uh, girl, I saw them raise her legs up. I assumed that they were trying to get the blood flow from her legs to move into the rest of her body. And as they raised her legs, one of the legs just limply, like a dead leg, flopped over. And I mean, I, it was horrifying. Dead people are not susceptible to temptation. Dead people don't get their feelings hurt when others mock them. Dead people don't get impatient, angry, proud, and easily offended. Dead people don't seek their identity in their fame, their wealth, their looks, or their fitness. Dead people don't agonize about how they wish their lives had gone in the past. All that is over. There's no sensation, there's no stimulation, and there is no response to those things. We have to train our thoughts. We have to think of ourselves as dead to sin. Verse 8. I think Paul is now going to shift to thinking about what it is to be alive to God. If we have died with Christ, he says in verse 8, we believe that we will also live with him. I think he's talking about the resurrection. So he's saying if, we, if we've been united to Christ by faith in his crucifixion, we believe that just as God raised him from the dead, God's going to raise us from the dead. We know, he says in verse 9, that Christ being raised from the dead will never die again. Death no longer has dominion over him. And the reason that death has no dominion over him is because he has no sin. Sin, the wages of sin is death. Jesus committed no sin. There is nothing for Jesus to die. He has satisfied the Father's wrath against our sin 
And so there's no more hold on him by death. There are no more bills to pay. Verse 10, for the death he died, he died to sin once for all. But the life he lives, he lives to God. And then the application, the imperative in verse 11, so you also must consider yourselves dead to sin and alive to God in Christ Jesus. This is who you are. This is your identity. But the world and your habits and your accustomed practices is trying to crowd all that out. Your flesh is trying to crowd that out. Your mortal body is trying to crowd that out. Your impulses are trying to crowd. And we have to fight. We have to fight for this identity. We have to fight so that the first thing that we think about ourselves, the way that we identify in our own heads, and the way that we relate to other people is, I'm dead to sin, I'm alive to God. We have to fight for that. How? How do we do this? Well, Paul elsewhere says that we need to take every thought captive to the knowledge of Christ. We should practice this. We should practice, and and you should... I, I, I submit to you that you should look at your life and you should say, if, 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 if thoughts were intruders and they were trying to sneak into my house, what would I do? I would probably set up a security system to alert me when they're coming. And if they got smart about my security system, I would probably try to devise some clever trap to ensnare them. We should apply that kind of creativity and diligence to the things that tempt us. We should... We should look at how we failed in the past and say, how did I get there? How did I get there? Okay, this happened, and then this other thing happened, and I was tired, so I need to get good rest. And I was frustrated, so maybe I need to get some physical exercises. And um, I, I didn't have regular time in the Word, so maybe I need to cultivate spiritual disciplines. And then somebody said something nasty to me, and I sought sinful comfort to try to comfort myself. Okay, so I need to prepare myself for this battle, and then I need to set traps for those things and spring those traps and take those thoughts captive when they come so that I don't fall in that way in the future. Well, how do we, how do we cultivate that? Well, I think we need to meditate on Scripture, and, and we need to pray for the Lord's help. That's what we need to do. Romans 6.11 would be a great verse to, to memorize and meditate. So you also must consider yourselves dead to sin and alive to God in Christ Jesus. And, and you know, you see the cesspool and it looks like a mirage. It looks like a swimming pool that's just going to be glorious to dive into. And, and you need to apply the Bible to that thing so that the blinders are removed and you see it for what it is. It's filth. It's not glorious. And, and this is what I think Paul is just continuing in this ap- application phase here in verses 12 through 14. And, um, and he's, it's like he's himself, he's trying to help us to, to conceptualize what it is to be dead to sin. So verse 12, he says, let not sin therefore reign in your mortal body. Look down at verse 14. Sin will have no dominion over you. Okay, so he starts and ends, verse 12 and verse 14, with this idea of sin reigning. It's like sin is a power. Sin is like a, a, a king who formerly held dominion, but your death released you from that citizenship. 
that Lord no longer is your master because you died with Christ when he was crucified. When you placed your faith in him, you were crucified with him, and, that, and you released from the power of the reigning sin, and he has no more dominion over you. Verse 12, let not sin therefore reign in your mortal body to make you obey its passions. You could render that word passions, desires. It's interesting. I think the desires in, in view are sin's desires. Sin's desires that we feel. We feel the desires that spring from this power called sin, but we're not to let that reign. So, so when he comes calling, and when we feel the passions, the desires, we have to say, you don't reign over me. I was crucified with Jesus. I was crucified with Jesus. You are not my Lord anymore. I am free from your power. That's what we have to do. And then he tells us more how to do this. Verse 13, do not present your members to sin as instruments for unrighteousness, but present yourselves to God as those who have been brought from death to life and your members to God as instruments for righteousness. Now, this idea of your members as instruments, it's almost like your body, it's like they're weapons. The CSB actually renders this, uh, do not present... Uh, your bodies, or I don't remember exactly how it says, but it uses, I think it uses the word weapons there as weapons. Uh, the word instruments is the one it renders weapons. Do not present your members as weapons for unrighteousness. So it's like you're either fighting for sin and his kingdom, or you're fighting for King Jesus and his kingdom. And you're to use your body and, and its members as weapons for the Lord Jesus. So we need to conceptualize ourselves this way. And think of ourselves this way. And notice how, just as he's got um, sin not reigning in verse 12 and not having dominion in verse 14, in verse 13, do not present your members to sin as instruments for unrighteousness. And then in, in, at the end of verse 13, he says, your members to God as instruments for righteousness. And in the middle of the whole thing, he says, present yourselves to God as those who have been brought from death to life. That's the key. Present yourself to God as one who's been made alive out of death. You were crucified with Jesus. He was raised from the dead. You partake of resurrection life, believing that your body is going to be raised. Present yourselves to God as those who have been brought from death to life. And think of your members not as weapons for unrighteousness, but as weapons for righteousness because the dominion of sin has been broken. And the reason, at the end of verse 14, sin will have no dominion on you, for you're not under law, but under grace. He's returning to that idea in 520. 520, the law came in to increase the trespass, but where sin increased, grace abounded all the more. Well, now you're not under law. You're under grace. You're under the reign of grace. You're in Christ. You're not in Adam. So sin has no dominion. Uh, there's a great illustration of what it looks like to live this way at the end of Tim Keller's book, Making Sense of God, when he talks about this place called Shandong uh, Compound. It was a concentration camp in China, and it was actually the place where Eric Liddell was, was, was put. And he describes this place um, 
they, they had these, these cells, um, the personal living space for the, for the, the prisoners in this, in this compound. Um, they had nine feet by 54 inch, inches per person. And in that place, each person had to keep his possessions and he had to somehow maintain his own personal well-being. And um, these prisoners, um, they began to uh, be at enmity with one another. Everyone's fighting for space. Everyone's fighting for food. Selfishness is prevailing. And... Um, and, and it is extremely difficult circumstances. And, and human nature in all its wickedness was on display in this place. And there was, there was one instance where um, one of the prisoners actually died and, and it left a fewer number of men living in one of, these, one of these units. And those men refused to allow someone else to be moved in, even though it would have been fair to the other prisoners, you know, for space to be equally distributed. They did not want that person brought in. And in that compound, there was a man who was different. And um, it was written of Eric Liddell, someone commenting on him, says, it was a rare person indeed in our camp whose mind could rise beyond that involvement of the self in crucial issues to view them dispassionately. Rational behavior in communal action is primarily a moral and not an intellectual achievement, possible only to a person morally capable of self-sacrifice. He says, in a real sense, I came to believe moral selflessness is a prerequisite for the life of reason, not its consequence, as so many philosophers contend. So what, he, what he's saying is, in order for someone to be rational about fairness, they first have to be committed to self-sacrifice. And the way that Eric Liddell got to be committed to self-sacrifice was he understood that he was crucified with Christ and that he was dead to sin and that he was alive to God. It, it was written of Liddell, um, the same author. He says, it is, a rare, it, is, it is rare indeed when a person has the good fortune to meet a saint. But he, Eric Liddell, came as close to it as anyone I have ever known. He wasn't fighting with others for space. He wasn't fighting with others for food. He was giving of himself. He was caring for others. And the reason is because he was a Christian and sin had no power over him. If you're here this morning and you're not a Christian, the first step to being freed from the power of sin is for you to realize that you're in a cesspool and that, and that you need to be delivered from it and for you to cry out to the Lord. Paul is going to say later in this letter, everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. You can be delivered. You can be saved. You can be crucified with Christ and given the life of the age to come, but you must call on the name of the Lord Jesus. Let's pray together. Father, we, we don't want to be hearers only. We want to be doers of the word. So, Lord, we pray that you would enable us to consider ourselves dead to sin and alive to you. And, Lord, we pray that you would help us to apply this reality 
to the whole of who we are. Lord, keep us from thinking that our past defines us. Keep us from thinking that our sins define us. Keep us from thinking that who we have been is who we will be. Lord, convince us by your grace, by the power of your word, that our old man was crucified, that we were buried, and that we can walk in newness of life. We ask that you do it in Jesus' name. Amen.